Chapter Nine, Part Two, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume Two, by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine, The Polar Journey, The Barrier Stage, Part Two. The next march, November thirteenth to fourteenth, was rather better, though the going was very deep and heavy, and all the ponies were showing signs of wear and tear. This was followed by a delightfully warm day, and all the animals were standing drowsily in the sunshine. We could see the land far away behind us, the first sight of land we had had for many days. On November 15th we reached one ton depot, having travelled a 130 miles from Hut Point. The two sledges left standing were still upright, and the tattered remains of a flag flapped over the main cairn. In a salt tin lashed to the bamboo flagpole, was a note from Lieutenant Evans to say that he had gone on with the motor-party five days before, and would continue man-hauling to eighty degrees thirty minutes south, and await us there. "'He has done something over thirty miles in two and a half days. Exceedingly good going.' We dug out the cairn, which we found just as we had left it, except that there was a big tongue of drift, level with the top of the cairn to leeward, and running about a hundred and fifty yards to northeast showing that the prevailing wind here is southwest. Nine months before we had sprinkled some oats on the surface of the snow, hoping to get a measurement of the accretion of snow during the winter. Unfortunately, we were unable to find the oats again, but other evidence went to show that the snow deposit was very small. A minimum thermometer, which was lashed with great care to a framework, registered minus 73 degrees. After the temperatures already experienced by us on the barrier during the winter and spring, this was surprisingly high, especially as our minimum temperatures were taken under the sledge, which means that the thermometer is shaded from radiation, while this thermometer, at one ton, was left open to the sky. On the winter journey we found that a shaded thermometer registered minus 69 degrees, when an unshaded one registered minus 75 degrees, a difference of 6 degrees. All the provisions left here were found to be in excellent condition. We then had a prolonged council of war. This meant that Scott called Bowers and perhaps Oates into our tent after supper was finished in the morning. Somehow these conferences were always rather serio-comic. On this occasion, as was usually the case, the question was ponies. It was decided to wait here one day and rest them, as there was ample food. The main discussion centred round the amount of forage to be taken on from here, while the state of the ponies, the amount they could pull, and the distance they could go had to be taken into consideration. Oates thinks the ponies will get through, but that they have lost condition quicker than he expected. Considering his usually pessimistic attitude, this must be thought a hopeful view. Personally, I am much more hopeful. I think that a good many of the beasts are actually in better form than when they started, and that there is no need to be alarmed about the remainder, always excepting the weak ones, which we have always regarded with doubt. Well, we must wait and see how things go. The decision was made to take just enough food to get the ponies to the glacier, allowing for the killing of some of them before that date. It was obvious that Jehu and Chinaman could not go very much farther, and it was also necessary that ponies should be killed in order to feed the dogs. The two dog teams were carrying about a week's pony food, but they were unable to advance more than a fortnight from one ton without killing ponies. This decision practically meant that Scott abandoned the idea of taking ponies up the glacier. This was a great relief, for the crevassed state of the lower reaches of the glacier, as described by Shackleton, 
led us to believe that the attempt was suicidal. All the winter our brains were exercised to try and devise some method by which the ponies could be driven from behind, and by which the connection between pony and sledge could be loosed if the pony fell into a crevasse, but I confess that there seemed little chance of this happening. From all we saw of the glacier I am convinced that there is no reasonable chance of getting ponies up it, and that dogs could only be driven down it if the way up was most carefully surveyed and kept on the return. I am sure that in this kind of uncertainty the mental strain on the leader of a party is less than that on his men. The leader knows quite well what he thinks worth while risking or not. In this case Scott probably was always of the opinion that it would not be worth while taking ponies on to the glacier. The pony leaders, however, only knew that the possibility was ahead of them. I can remember now the relief with which we heard that it was not intended that Wilson should take Nobby, the fittest of our ponies, farther than the gateway. Up to now Christopher had lived up to his reputation, as the following extracts from Bower's diary will show. Three times we downed him, and he got up and threw us about, with all four of us hanging on like grim death. He nearly had me under him once. He seems fearfully strong, but it is a pity he wastes so much good energy. Christopher, as usual, was strapped on three legs, and then got down on his knees. He gets more cunning each time, and if he does not succeed in biting or kicking one of us before long it won't be his fault. He finds the soft snow does not hurt his knees like the sea-ice, and so plunges about on them ad-lib. Juan's finesco are so slippery that it is difficult to exert full strength on him, and to-day he bowled oats over and got away altogether. Fortunately the lashings on his fourth leg held fast, and we were able to secure him when he rejoined the other animals. Finally he lay down, and thought he had defeated us, but we had the sledge connected up by that time, and as he got up we rushed him forward before he had time to kick over the traces. Dimitri came and gave us a hand with Chris. Three of us hung on to him, while the other two connected up the sledge. We had a struggle for over twenty minutes, and he managed to tread on me, but no damage done. Got Chris in by a dodge. Titus did away with his back strap, and nearly had him away unaided before he realised that the hated sledge was fast to him. Unfortunately he started off just too soon, and bolted with only one trace fast. This pivoted him to starboard, and he charged the line. I expected a mix-up, but he stopped at the wall between Bones and Snatcher, and we cast off and cleared sledge before trying again. By laying the traces down the side of the sledge, instead of a head, we got him off his guard again and he was away before he knew what had occurred. We had a bad time with Chris again. He remembered having been bluffed before, and could not be got near the sledge at all. Three times he broke away, but fortunately he always ran back among the other ponies, and not out on to the barrier. Finally we had to down him, and he was so tired with his recent struggles, that after one abortive attempt we got him fast and away. Meanwhile it was not so much the difficulties of sledging as the depressing blank conditions in which our march was so often made that gave us such troubles as we had. The routine of a tent makes a lot of difference. Scott's tent was a comfortable one to live in, and I was always glad when I was told to join it, and sorry to leave. He was himself extraordinarily quick, and no time was ever lost by his party in camping or breaking camp. He was most careful, some said over-careful, but I do not think so that everything should be neat and shipshape, and there was a recognised place for everything. 
On the depot journey we were bidden to see that every particle of snow was beaten off our clothing and finesco before entering the tent. If it was drifting we had to do this after entering and the snow was carefully cleared off the floor cloth. Afterwards each tent was supplied with a small brush with which to perform this office. In addition to other obvious advantages this materially helped to keep clothing, finesco and sleeping bags dry and thus prolong the life of furs. After all is said and done, said Wilson one day after supper, the best sledger is the man who sees what has to be done and does it and says nothing about it. Scott agreed. And if you were sledging with the owner, you had to keep your eyes wide open for the little things which cropped up and do them quickly and say nothing about them. There is nothing so irritating as the man who is always coming in and informing all and sundry that he has repaired his sledge or built a wall or filled the cooker or mended his socks. I moved into Scott's tent for the first time in the middle of the depot journey, and was enormously impressed by the comfort which a careful routine of this nature evoked. There was a homelike air about the tent at supper-time, and, though a lunch-camp in the middle of the night is always rather bleak, there was never anything slovenly. Another thing which struck me even more forcibly was the cooking. We were, of course, on just the same ration as the tent from which I had come. I was hungry and said so. Bad cooking said Wilson shortly, and so it was. For in two or three days the sharpest edge was off my hunger. Wilson and Scott had learned many a cooking tip in the past, and instead of the same old meal day by day, the weekly ration was so manoeuvred by a clever cook that it was seldom quite the same meal. Sometimes pemmican plain, or thicker pemmican with some arrowroot mixed with it, at others we surrendered a biscuit and a half apiece, and had a dry hoosh, i.e. biscuit, fried in pemmican, with a little water added, and a good big cup of cocoa to follow. Dry hooshes also saved oil. There were cocoa and tea upon which to ring the changes, or better still, tea-co, which combined the stimulating qualities of tea with the food value of cocoa. Then much could be done with the dessert spoonful of raisins, which was our daily whack. They were good soaked in the tea, but best perhaps in with the biscuits and pemmican as a dry hoosh. "'You are going far to earn my undying gratitude, Cherry,' was a satisfied remark of Scott one evening, when, having saved, unbeknownst to my companions, some of their daily ration of cocoa, arrowroot, sugar and raisins, I made a chocolate hoosh. But I am afraid he had indigestion next morning. There were meals when we had interesting little talks, as when I find in my diary that we had a jolly lunch meal discussing authors. Barry, Galsworthy and others are personal friends of Scott. Someone told Max Beerbaum that he was like Captain Scott, and immediately, so Scott assured us, he grew a beard. But about three weeks out, the topics of conversation became threadbare. From then onwards, it was often that whole days passed without conversation beyond the routine, Camp ho! All ready! Pack up! Spell ho! The latter, after some two hours pulling, when man-hauling we used to start pulling immediately, we had the tent down, the sledge packed, and our harness over our bodies and ski on our feet. After about a quarter of an hour the effects of the marching would be felt in the warming of hands and feet, and the consequent thawing of our mitts and finesco. We then halted long enough for everybody to adjust their ski and clothing, then on, perhaps for two hours or more, before we halted again. Since it had been decided to lighten the ponies' weights, we left at least a hundred pounds of pony forage behind when we started from one ton on the night of November 16th to 17th on our first thirteen-mile march. This was a distinct saving. 
and instead of £695 each, with which the six stronger ponies left corner camp, they now pulled only £625. Jehu had only £455, and Chinaman £448. The dog teams had £860 of pony food between them, and according to plan the two teams were to carry £1,570 from one ton between them. These weights included the sledges, with straps and fittings, which weighed about £45. Summer seemed long in coming, for we marched into a considerable breeze, and the temperature was minus 18 degrees. Oates and Seaman Evans had quite a crop of frostbites. I pointed out to Mears that his nose was gone, but he left it, saying that he had got tired of it, and it would thaw out by and by. The ponies were going better for their rest. The next day's march was over crusty snow, with a layer of loose powdery snow at the top, and a temperature of minus twenty-one degrees was chilly. Towards the end of it Scott got frightened that the ponies were not going as well as they should. Another council of war was held, and it was decided that an average of thirteen miles a day must be done at all costs, and that another sack of forage should be dumped here, putting the ponies on short rations later if necessary. Oates agreed, but said the ponies were going better than he expected, that Jehu and Chinaman might go a week, and almost certainly would go three days. Bowers was always against this dumping. Meanwhile Scott wrote, "'It's touch and go whether we scrape up to the glacier. Meanwhile we get along somehow.' As a result of one of Christopher's tantrums, Bowers records that his sledge-meter was carried away this morning. "'I took my sledge-meter into the tent after breakfast and rigged up a fancy lashing with rawhide thongs, so as to give it the necessary play with security. A splendid parahelia exhibition was caused by the ice crystals. Around the sun was a twenty-two degrees halo, that is a halo twenty-two degrees from the sun's image, with four mock suns in rainbow colours, and outside this another halo in complete rainbow colours. Above the sun were the arcs of two other circles touching these halos, and the arcs of the great all-round circle could be seen faintly on either side. Below was a dome-shaped glare of white, which contained an exaggerated mock sun, which was as dazzling as the sun himself. Altogether a fine example of a pretty common phenomenon down here. And the next day, we saw the party ahead in inverted mirage some distance above their heads. In the next three marches we covered our daily thirteen miles, for the most part without very great difficulty, but poor Jeho was in a bad way, stopping every few hundred yards. It was a funereal business for the leaders of these crock-ponies, and at this stage of the journey Atkinson, Wright and Keon had many more difficulties than most of us, and the success of their ponies was largely due to their patience and care. Incidentally, big icicles formed upon the ponies' noses during the march, and Chinaman used Wright's windproof blouse as a handkerchief. During the last of these marches, that is, on the morning of November 21st, we saw a massive cairn ahead, and found there the motor party, consisting of Lieutenant Evans, Day, Lashley and Hooper. The cairn was in 80 degrees 32 minutes, and under the name Mount Hooper formed our upper barrier depot. We left there three S summit rations, two cases of emergency biscuits, and two cases of oil, which constituted three weekly food units for the three parties which were to advance from the bottom of the Beardmore Glacier. This food was to take them back from 80 degrees 32 minutes to one ton camp. We all camped for the night three miles farther on. Sixteen men, five tents, ten ponies, twenty-three dogs, and thirteen sledges. The man-hauling party had been waiting for six days, 
and, having expected us before, were getting anxious about us. They declared that they were very hungry, and Day, who was always long and thin, looked quite gaunt. Some spare biscuits which were given them from our tent were carried off with gratitude. The rest of us, who were driving dogs or leading ponies, still found our barrier ration satisfying. We had now been out three weeks, and had travelled 192 miles, and formed a very good idea as to what the ponies could do. The crocs had done wonderfully. "'We hope Jehu will last three days. He will then be finished in any case, and fed to the dogs. It is amusing to see Mears looking eagerly for the chance of a feed for his animals. He has been expecting it daily.' On the other hand, Atkinson and Oates are eager to get the poor animal beyond the point at which Shackleton killed his first beast. Reports on Chinamen are very favourable, and it really looks as though the ponies are going to do what is hoped of them. From first to last, Nobby, who was rescued from the flow, was the strongest pony we had, and was now drawing a heavier load than any other pony by fifty pounds. He was a well-shaped, contented kind of animal, misnamed a pony. Indeed, several of our beasts were too large to fit this description. Christopher, of course, was wearing himself out quicker than most, but all of them had lost a lot of weight in spite of the fact that they had all the oats and oil cake they could eat. Bowers writes of his pony, Victor, my pony, has taken to leading the line, like his opposite number last season. He's a steady goer, and as gentle as a dear old sheep. I can hardly realise the strenuous times I had with him only a month ago, when it took about four of us to get him a harness to a sledge, and two of us every time with all our strength to keep him from bolting when in it. Even at the start of the journey he was as nearly unmanageable as any beast could be, and always liable to bolt from sheer excess of spirits. He is more sober now after three weeks of featureless barrier, but I think I am more fond of him than ever. He has lost his rotundity like all the other horses, and is a long-legged angular beast, very ugly as horses go, but still I would not change him for any other. The ponies were fed by their leaders at the lunch and supper halts, and by Oates and Bowers during the sleep halt, about four hours before we marched. Several of them developed a troublesome habit of swinging their nose-bags off, some as soon as they were put on, others in their anxiety to reach the corn still left uneaten in the bottom of the bag. We had to lash their bags to the head-stalls. Victor got hold of his head-rope yesterday, and devoured it, not because he is hungry, as he won't eat all his allowance even now. The original intention was that Day and Hooper should return from 80 degrees 30 minutes, but it was now decided that their unit of four should remain intact for a few days, and constitute a light man-hauling advance party to make the track. The weather was much more pleasant, and we saw the sun most days, while I note only one temperature below minus 20 degrees since leaving one ton. The ponies sank in a cruel distance some days, but we were certainly not overworking them, and they had as much food as they could eat. We knew the grim part was to come, but we never realised how grim it was to be. From this northern barrier depot, the ponies were mostly drawing less than five hundred pounds, and we had hopes of getting through to the glacier without much difficulty. All depended on the weather, and just now it was glorious, and the ponies were going steadily together. Jehu, the crockiest of the crocks, was led back along the track and shot on the evening of November 24th, having reached a point at least fifteen miles beyond that where Shackleton shot his first pony. When it is considered that it was doubtful whether he could start at all, this must be conceded to have been a triumph of horse management, in which both Oates and Atkinson shared, though neither so much as Jehu himself. 
for he must have had a good spirit to have dragged his poor body so far. A year's care and good feeding, three weeks' work with good treatment, a reasonable load and a good ration, and then a painless end. If anybody can call that cruel, I cannot either understand it or agree with them. Thus Bowers, who continues, The midnight sun reflected from the snow has started to burn my face and lips. I smear them with hazeline before turning in, and find it a good thing. Wearing goggles has absolutely prevented any recurrence of snow blindness. Captain Scott says they make me see everything through rose-coloured spectacles. We said good-bye to Day and Hooper next morning, and they set their faces northward and homeward. Two men parties on the barrier are not much fun. Day had certainly done his best about the motors, and they had helped us over a bad bit of initial surface. That night Scott wrote, Only a few more marches to feel safe in getting to our goal. At the lunch halt on November 26, in latitude 81 degrees 35 minutes, we left our middle barrier depot, containing one week's provisions for each returning unit, as at Mount Hooper, a reduction of £200 in our weights. The march that day was very trying. It is always rather dismal work, walking over the great snow plain when sky and surface merge in one pool of dead whiteness. But it is cheering to be in such good company, with everything going on steadily and well. There was no doubt that the animals were tiring, and a tired animal makes a tired man, I find. The next day, November 28th, was no better. The most dismal start imaginable, thick as a hedge, snow falling and drifting, with keen southerly wind. Bowers notes, We have now run down a whole degree of latitude without a fine day, or anything but clouds, mist, and driving snow from the south. We certainly did have some difficult marches, one of the worst effects of which was that we knew we must be making a winding course and we had to pick up our depots on the return somehow. Here is a typical bad morning from Bower's diary. The first four miles of the march were utter misery for me, as Victor either through lassitude or because he did not like having to plug into the wind went as slow as a funeral horse. The light was so bad that wearing goggles was most necessary, and the driving snow filled them up as fast as you cleared them. I dropped a long way astern of the cavalcade, could hardly see them at times through the snow, but the fear that Victor, of all the beasts, should give out was like a nightmare. I have always been used to starting later than the others by a quarter of a mile, and catching them up. At the four-mile cairn I was about fed up to the neck with it, but I said very little, as everybody was so disgusted with the weather, and things in general, that I saw I was not the only one in tribulation. Victor turned up trumps after that. He stepped out and led the line in his old place, and at a good swinging pace considering the surface my temper and spirits, improving at every step. In the afternoon he went splendidly again, and finished up by rolling in the snow when I had taken his harness off, a thing he has not done for ten or twelve days. It certainly does not look like exhaustion. Indeed, these days we were fighting for our marches, and Chinaman, who was killed this night, seemed well out of it. He reached a point less than ninety miles from the glacier, though this was small comfort to him. Stumbling and groping our way along, as we had been during the last blizzard, we were totally unprepared for the sight which met us during our next march on November 29th. The great ramp of mountains which ran to the west of us, and would soon bar our way to the south, partly cleared, and right on top of us, it seemed, were the triple peaks of Mount Markham. After some three hundred miles of bleak, monotonous barrier, it was a wonderful sight indeed. We camped at night in latitude 82 degrees, 21 minutes south, four miles beyond Scott's previous farthest south in 1902. 
Then they had the best of luck in clear fine weather, which Shackleton has also recorded at this stage of his southern journey. End of chapter 9, part 2